I'm your host, Eleanor Arsbecker. And I'm your host, Demetria Wack. Today on Policy Wise. Especially since the beginning of the pandemic, when so much of our lives moved online, the digital divide has become increasingly prevalent. In California, though broadband subscriptions were at record height pre-pandemic, significant gaps still exist, with diminished broadband access within low-income, minority, and rural communities. Considering the ever-expanding reliance on technology within education and workforce development, it is vital to close the digital divide to give underserved communities and youth equal opportunity for success and achievement. A few episodes back, we talked to Prince and Sunny about legislative efforts to tackle the digital divide. Today, we'll be approaching the issue from a new angle, learning from an organization who works directly with young people throughout California and beyond. The Digital Nest aims to create economic equality for the residents of low-income and rural regions and teach young people the technical skills needed to become competitive and self-sufficient in the digital future. The Digital Nest model for tech equality has received national recognition for conquering the digital divide in underserved communities throughout the United States. We will be talking with founder of Digital Nest, Jacob Martinez. Before starting Digital Nest, Jacob spent 10 years running a program funded by the National Science Foundation to encourage underrepresented Latina girls and boys later as well to study computer science. Jacob currently sits on several community boards and has received many leadership rewards, such as being named one of TechCrunch's 2014 Top 10 Men in the Country Supporting Women in Technology. So we gave a little bit of background on Digital Nest, but could you please introduce yourself and talk about why you started Digital Nest? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be here with, with both of you. Um, so yeah, so Digital Nest um, launched back in 2014. Um, but as Demi mentioned, it was really built upon all this prior work that I was doing in the community already. Um, and the, the story is uh, kind of a, uh, it's told a lot, but um, I happened to be walking downtown Watsonville at, like on a, at the farmer's market. And uh, it was a cold October evening in, in the, at the end of 2013. And I saw a young woman sitting outside of a building, uh, typing away at a, on a computer. And, you know, I was in tech education at that point for years and years. And so I approached her curious about what she was doing because I could tell she was cold. And so I asked her, hey, what are you doing outside? And um, she's like, well, I'm working on a research paper. I'm in, I'm in community college. I said, yeah, but I could tell you're cold. What are you doing like sitting outside? And she says, well, I don't have internet at home. Um, I can't afford to go to Starbucks. And um, the library was closed. So she was literally sitting outside of a building tapping into the Wi-Fi. And that just hit me. Like I went home and I was telling my wife, gosh, I've been doing this work for so many years and and like bringing all this money into this community, but still here are some like young, brilliant people just like hitting this like barrier of access. But we, And we work in this community of Watsonville, which is just, you know, 45 minutes outside of Silicon Valley. Um, and I said, well, you know, just right over the hill are these amazing environments where adults come and they get inspired and they create new technologies and new and they bring they develop innovation innovation and like campuses like google and facebook and apple these amazing environments just exist right over the hill but here in our community it's not this young person can't get internet so i said to myself that night and kind of with my wife i was like i'm done i'm sick of it um it's time to bring silicon valley to our communities um, so in 2014 i had this vision of of what if I kind of recreate those those tech campuses, these really innovative, creative, collaborative spaces with all the technology and free food and just uh, cool furniture and music, just like you see at Google, um, bring it to communities like Watsonville, 
and then um, to allow them to get access and to really prosper. Well, that, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your work. It It is really interesting and really, really special that you were able to do something, you know, with this like random situation that you ran into one day. I think a lot of us have that feeling often where, you know, you see like inequality and you see opportunities and you know that there could be like a simple bridge to, to, to mend that gap. Um, but it's, it's very, it's not very often that people actually go out and, and create like a whole nother organization um, to be that bridge. So it's really special. And what you talked about with the woman um, sitting outside the, the restaurant getting Wi-Fi, I think we see a lot of that now, especially during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, the work that Digital Nest is doing, especially being so on the ground, um, must have a really profound effect. So could you go, and you talked about it a little bit, about it kind of being like a Google for these communities or this kind of like tech hub. But what exactly is Digital Nest and um, what is the work that you do or like some of the main programs? Yeah, so the physical space is just the foundation. It's just getting giving people access. And so we want to ensure that youth have access and youth, youth have the environment and, and the creative space to, to, to work. Um, but really, how do we layer on training and education so that they could compete for jobs and out-compete for uh, their peers for jobs um, because what you're seeing in communities like Watsonville and Salinas and Gilroy and all these communities that surround Silicon Valley, the spread of Silicon Valley has gone beyond San Jose and San Francisco and Oakland. It's, it's hit all these smaller rural communities. And so we're starting to see people in these communities get pushed out. Um, and so we want to um, ensure that the youth are there to able to get, get the jobs. Um, so we, so we do workforce development, uh, we focus on three kind of career paths. One is web and IT, which is your traditional coding, web design, you know, all the things you think about tech. Um, but then we also teach digital arts and technology, which is for the creatives in the in the community. So we teach videography, uh, uh, graphic design, um, audio production. Um, and then third, we teach uh, project management uh, and kind of marketing and communication. So um, uh, so those are three kind of career paths, um, but they all kind of lead up into what we call business, which is our own internal internship program. So we actually hire the top youth that should come onto our payroll, their employees at Digital Nest. Um, and then they do an internship with us. They work for real paid clients. Um, so we've built websites or graphic done graphics or video work for the local health department, UC Santa Cruz. We've done work for small nonprofits, businesses, um, to give them that experience uh, and help them build a portfolio and b- build their network so that they can compete for jobs. Yeah, no, that's that's great. It sounds like it's such an all-encompassing program, and that you're giving opportunities to so many people in so many different areas. Um, you mentioned that Digital Nest is currently based in Watsonville and Salinas and surrounding areas, um, but obviously the work that you do is so, so important that it would be helpful across the state. Do you have plans to expand to more underserved communities in California? And like, if you do, what is that vision for, for your expansion and what are you hoping to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I, when I launched Digital Nest back in 2014, I, I, I've been doing this work for a lot of years and, and I haven't seen anything like this. So I knew I had a good idea and I knew it was needed in communities uh, like Watsonville. And I knew there was communities all across this country that like Watsonville where there's just 
tons of brilliant young people, but not any opportunity for them to to really push themselves creatively and, and technically uh, with their skills. Um, so, yes, I added. I, I we plan to scale uh, Digital Nest, and so we have our two centers now: one in Watsonville and one in Salinas. Uh, they're in pretty big spaces. The one in Watsonville is about 4,500 square feet. It's the old Watsonville post office. And in uh, Salinas, we're in the old firehouse, which is super cool like to have a firehouse. Um, uh, and then uh, we have announced our third location. We're going to be opening up Gilroy, uh, which is just south of San Jose. Gilroy is this year. Um, and then we have aspirations to open up six more across the Bay Area. Uh, our vision is to surround the Bay Area in communities like Stockton and Tracy and Napa and Santa Rosa and Sonoma. And like, there's all these communities with tons of talent that surround the Bay, uh, but aren't getting tapped. So our vision is to open up six more centers uh, around the Bay area. So that'd be a total of nine. And then collectively we could put pressure on the Bay area and pressure on the tech industry to start looking at regional talent, regional diverse talent, that they say that they want, but they can't find, but we know that exists around the, in these communities. So we have plans for nine. And then, um, and then what, who knows, you know, uh, do we scale down and surround Los Angeles? Do we, do we look at uh, scaling around other tech centers like, or tech cities like Austin or, or Boulder, Colorado, or there's a lot of other kind of, or Seattle, right? Like other kind of epicenters of tech. Um, so we're not there yet, but we know for sure our plan is to open up nine more in, in the front Bay area. Wow. Really exciting and incredibly impressive. Um, and I, and I want to get back to this idea of just kind of starting a nonprofit because, um, you make it seem so easy. And, uh, I think a lot of us would, would love to do something similar, but it's one thing to start a nonprofit, and it's also another thing to sustain a nonprofit and see it grow. So, could you talk us through a little bit about maybe any challenges that you face starting a nonprofit, or how you even went about it, and also where you receive your funding and and how you've been able to to continuously grow? Yeah, you know, it's a uh, I get asked asked this question a lot because a lot of people have ideas of of how to help, you know, and. Um, so first thing I tell people is, do you want to run an organization or do you want to run a program? Because I now run an organization. I don't do programming anymore. Um, so that means I'm dealing with payroll and HR and legal and taxes and uh, revenue and budgets and finance. So I, I'm running a business. A nonprofit is running, and the size of our nonprofit now, it's like running a pretty big business where I have to make payroll every month. I got to uh, make sure people have benefits and um uh, deal with conflict and deal with opportunities. So um, it's a that's that's what it, people think. Like nonprofits often are like not businesses, but I'm essentially running a business. I just I'm not making any money off of it. Like I don't have any shares in it. You know, uh, it's for the commu- benefit of the communities. Um, so that's the first thing. You know, um, and it's it's a lot of work. You know, uh, um, growing and getting revenue, and that's the tricky thing. I don't. I'm not the the product I'm selling is a vision and is, and is hope and is belief, you know? And, and, and so I'm not, you don't have physically have anything. You are trusting donors are trusting that Jacob and his team are helping these youth move forward. 
and of course there's metrics and stuff like that and data we could pull, but, but it's, it's a different type of sales. Um, I never thought I'd be a salesman, but really that's what I am. Uh, but, um, so it's, it's, it's different, but in a lot of ways it's the same. It's very much like running a business. Um, most of our support comes from individuals. Um, we wanted this to be community driven. And so we want community investment. So we, we do a lot with fundraising with local individuals. Um, but then we also get some foundations, um, that support the nest as well. So, I mean, you just talked a little bit about how the organization itself has changed and developed over time. Um, and also your, your plans for expansion. I guess I'm thinking in the spaces that I'm a part of, I'm very into environmental activism. My, the thing that inspired me to get started or, or I guess my outlook on the issue that I'm so passionate about has definitely also changed along with the spaces that I'm in. So you talked a bit about what inspired you in the beginning to, to get involved in digital equity and start Digital Nest. But I guess how has your outlook on or vision for digital equity transformed since since you did start Digital Nest? It's 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 um it's always kind of been the same. You know, we the, the problem has existed. You know, millions and millions of dollars have been pumped into tech education, and the needle hasn't moved. We don't see more women pursuing technology. We don't see more people of color pursuing technology. But this is after millions and millions of dollars gets pumped into tech education, you know? And so we knew this problem has existed for a long time, you know? Um, and in terms of like broadband access and access to opportunity, I, I think the world know, now knows like this is an issue because of COVID, you know? Um, and, but we knew this was an issue back, you know, back then, you know, for a long time. So my, I would say my, 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 my understanding of digital equity um, uh, hasn't really changed much. Like I've been pretty, I've been a pretty big proponent of this for a long time. Um, I think what's changed for me is as digital nest grows and our brand grows and, and we're growing into more communities. I've realized that we actually have a responsibility to help, change the narrative and bring the narrative to the forefront. And now we have a platform. Um, so I'm starting to do a lot of work around like advocacy work. Um, I'm just starting to dabble into like public policy and like, can, is there a way that we could change public policy around broadband access, around workforce development, around diversity and inclusion? Um, so it's, I guess it's, I've just put a, it's a bigger responsibility on me on me on the organization. Um, but the fundamental beliefs of like, there are, there are millions of brilliant young people, brilliant, diverse people, women, people of color, they've always existed. How do we just, uh, give them the opportunity and open the doors for them or bust down those doors has been there from the beginning. Relating back to policy wise as a whole, it does seem to to kind of be at the center of a law of change is this idea that becoming politically active and the way in which you can help, you know, create like kind of mass influence through policy uh, is, a, is a good approach and approach that has worked for other policies and hopefully will also work for, for digital nests and environmental stuff on Ellie's end. You did talk a little bit about um, COVID-19 and how it's kind of brought global attention to the issue. 
But has COVID-19 exacerbated the digital and technological challenges that you see in the communities that you work with? And has it changed the approach that Digital Nest takes and, you know, being online uh, or even maybe creating more more inequalities? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, we've been able to connect with a lot more youth than other communities because, you know, before, in order to take um, a Digital Nest class, you would have to come to one of our physical centers. And so now our classes are virtual. So we have youth from all around the state and even beyond that have taken some of our classes. Um, we host a conference every year for college students. We did this virtually for the first time. We had people tuning in from all a few, like throughout the entire country. Um, so like it's opened up those doors, you know, I think the, the biggest thing that I'm kind of watching now is we, no one, no one knew the, the lack of connectivity. Well, people knew, but I think the general public and communities didn't understand the extent at which people were disconnected and youth were disconnected and families disconnected until COVID hit. And now COVID hit and the schools districts did a pretty good job. And like, I'm pretty impressed about how rapid these archaic institutions were able to get like deploy technology to students. They get hotspots out, computers out, like they just are on it. You know, and there's, you know, there was always, there was, there was those youth that just completely disconnected because they live in rural, like truly rural parts of the, of the state that don't have access at all. So there are some that we missed, but overall, the community, the schools did a really good job. Now we're already talking about going back to school. And so all those hot spots that went out, all that technology that went out, now school districts are going to say, we can't maintain those costs. We need it back. So now we're all the youth again are going to be disconnected and families disconnected. But how are educators expectations of doing work remotely have how how have those changed over time? I suspect that more teachers are going to be like, turn your homework in online, get it in, you know, through Google Docs or whatever, because they're now been doing this for a year and a half. Uh, but now these youth are still disconnected, and so that's what I'm really watching and really trying to bring up to the forefront of like, let's not like let's not because it's out of sight, out of mind. Let's not revert back to where, where we were pre-COVID which means we got three months to get ready for this. Um, and so I don't think that urgency is there with policymakers or administrators. Um, and I think that's a shame because I was, you know, I'm hoping, I was really hoping that's something that we can, we can change because of the, like do some really good active, like look at how do we bring broadband to everybody uh, permanently as a basic utility. I, I honestly don't, I don't think, I don't think we're going to get there in three months. Yeah, no, I mean the, I've been having conversations with and a few other spaces too, about the transition back to in-person classes, specifically more around mental health, but the digital divide and digital equity when it comes to going back to in-person classes is not something I'd really considered. So like, thank you for sharing that, that viewpoint. Um, you know, the digital divide is obviously an issue that affects many communities. And you touched on this a little bit in the question you just answered. Um, but PolicyWise is a podcast focused on youth and youth issues and youth perspective. So could you expand a bit on how lack of broadband access and tech training impacts young people in particular, um, both, you know, pre-COVID and during COVID, if you, if you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean... You know, I have three kids. One's graduating high school today. Another one's a junior in high school. 
And the expectation of them turning in homework existed before COVID. Like my kids had to do stuff through Google Docs and like submit work. Now we have internet here, so it was no problem. A lot of kids in, in our community, they relied on their parents' cell phone or a hotspot generated by their phone that they would turn on for a little bit, turn into homework and then turn it off, right? Um, and so I think how broadband access impacts our young people is academically. I mean, if, if the expectation of teachers is going to shift to doing more work online, that means you're going to have a lot of youth needing to do homework at home uh, that don't have the time or the resources to be online. So ac- like, how is this going to impact them academically, their grades? You know, so are, are they now getting less homework done? Are the quality homeworks not as good? Um, therefore impacting their grades, therefore impacting their options to go to college or, or the type or the schools that they could get into. Um, so academically, this is going to be impacting them, which all it's like, it's like a, it's like a domino effect, right? You don't get good grades. You can't, you can't, you struggle to get to college. You can't get a good job. Yeah. It's just like repeating the cycle over and over again, you know? So, um, there's those things. There's also, I mean, like, like my kids are applying for jobs and looking for jobs. They do it online. Um, you know, I do all my bills online, so I don't have to like waste money on stamps and time and go to the post office. Like there's so much now that is digital that if you're disconnected, it's not, it's, you're getting a lack of information. You're wasting time and resources. Um, and so it's, it's, impacts everything yeah wow i i think you you bring up like a really hard-hitting point um with just the fact that you know you've kind of had this expectation for your kids to you know get good grades and uh my parents are both teachers and i was talking to my my dad teaches fifth grade and i was talking to him and and his students have been online for for most of the year just now back in port person and i was talking to him and i was like okay you know how how bad do you think like how bad is the situation? How bad has this year been? And he said, you know, for the students that already were getting like kind of the extra like push in order to, you know, get things done and get good grades. Like that was a thing that they thought saw was valuable. I I don't think it'll be much of a problem. He's like, but for, for other students like this, this has been, you know, this year has been not super effective. Um, and we're doing all that we can now, but the, going back to what you were mentioning, like that disadvantage is going to accumulate like and being set back in one area can set you back in so many areas. And I think it highlights why digital equity is so critical because it's not often seen as a being like a major component of contributing to, you know, the knowledge that can accumulate and perpetuate, but more and more having access to internet, having access to, you know, just like the basic, uh, basic like workability of technology is becoming so much more important in, you know, life, trajectories and and what people are able to do and find out about and the knowledge that they're able to receive and pass on to their family members. And one one thing you said, I think is really important. You talked about your father and like how they, he, you know, those kids that have those resources at home and get an extra push, like they'll, they'll get through it. You know, people who have resources will supplement our child's education with tutoring and, you know, other online learning stuff. But you know, what's also missing that people don't talk about is the social connection. Especially, mm. especially for graduating high school seniors and graduating college students, because they have now gone a year and a half from working at home. That means the, all those relationships that you get with teachers, with counselors um, that are saying, hey, 
like how are you doing with your schoolwork? What are your options in the future? Like, come meet me after am I let's let's sit down and talk after class. Like, let's figure this out. Let me introduce you to somebody that I know that could get you a job at the local market or at the bank. Like all that like interpersonal relationship dialogue that happens when you're face to face with somebody has is gone. And you know, I, I was when I graduated college, I wasn't the best student. The the reason why I've been so successful is because my last Two years of college, I was talking to my professors. I need an internship. I need a, I need like I need to find a job. And they're like, oh, there's a department on campus that's looking for someone to be an admin. Like, go work for them. And so I was an admin for this diversity program on campus. And then I was there and meeting faculty and other people. Then I got offered another job on campus. Like all those relationships that exist. We have high school seniors that are graduating high school that haven't had that for a year and a half. We have college students about to enter the workforce that haven't had that for a year and a half. So where, and if they go back home and their parents don't have that social capital, where are they going to get it from? And so that's another thing I think we, our, our young people need to be thinking about. Um, and it's always so easy. People always tell you like network, socialize, like meet with your teachers. Like it's such an easy thing, but it's so important, especially now. Totally, totally. No, I think you bring up such, such a huge point. I, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in the position right now where I'm doing my master's, but it's all been online. And yeah. I'm used to, you know, in my undergrad, I was very much used to like, okay, cool. You know, I'm going to, like all of the opportunities I've gotten has been like a, you know, side conversation with someone um, based off of, you know, like even if it's just telling me to apply for something like that, like those conversations just aren't happening. Uh, mm-hmm. And with my master's right now, I definitely, there's just like this level of disconnect where I'm like, you know, I feel like these professors who I'm going to have for a year, they see me and this is not no fault of them, but as like they're, you know, they're COVID students as in like, okay, cool. We just got to get through this year, get these students through in some way or another. And then, and then, you know, we'll be able to kind of pick up as normal or at least, you know, some kind of version of normal. And with like with those connections and that you know understanding and recognition of this kind of social capital that's missing for a lot of people is there anything that digital nest is going to be doing at the hubs in order to like maybe help build those connections up yeah i mean that's so much of what we do is is really giving you social capital um so i mean I mean, that's really like, it's, it's kind of like our secret, right? Is like, we have connections to all these employers and opportunities and people come to me and say, Hey, Jacob, I got the scholarship opportunity, or I got this job opportunity or, or, you know, and I want to mentor somebody. I want to coach somebody. So we have all these big things that come our way. And so it's so important that we have our youth there. Um, an example that the, even we've been struggling is we have a donor that has created scholarships for students that go to community college here locally, a thousand dollar scholarship for digital nest members. All of my staff, we pushed that out online, but you, we didn't get that many applicants. And it's like, this is a free thousand dollars. The application will take you 15 minutes, like complete it. But they're like, yeah, I'll get to it. Or just, they just delete the email. They don't even check their email to be honest, you know? And so, um, we used to do so much of that when they would come into our space and we'd say, Hey, sit down. Let's all help you do your application right now. Let's get it done. And they would, you know, get it. Um, so we've been struggling with it too. So we're like pushing to see how we could reopen our percenters. Our plan is that we're going to open up this summer, um, uh, socially distanced and safe and all that. 
But I really hope come August that we're fully back open the way we were because, um, you know, I think we're all over being online and uh, it's just not the same. And we got to get, we got to get, you know, with the youth. And so we're, with, uh, how are we going to try to solve this is we're just going to continue to push hard and, and, and get our doors open. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you're starting to kind of get into public policy. Um, and also, I mean, just like hearing you speak about Digital Nest, the scope in terms of the programs you offer and, and what you do is quite broad. Um, but obviously there's challenges when it comes to trying to address such a large issue with just like a nonprofit organization. And I know in the work that I do, a lot of the time I feel like, okay, like I'm in this space, I'm doing good work, but there's only so much I can do without like broad systemic change. Um, I guess, what do you think policymakers should do to help mend the digital divider? Just generally, like, what do you wish people in government knew about this issue so that we could have broader systemic change and really like hit home on this? Yeah. You know, um, I think we're going to start, we're going to start at the local level and, um, and use kind of like our communication channels to, to push policy because some of the things I want to see is, you know, our, like I mentioned earlier, the communities that we live in or we're working in are now being impacted by Silicon Valley. Um, if we live, we live in the Monterey Bay region, there is a lot of tech popping up in Monterey. Uh, we do work in Gilroy and, and Salinas. There's a lot of tech companies that are scaling down there. Um, so they're opening up offices into these regions, uh, which means their workforce is coming prices of cost of living is going to increase our families are going to get pushed out like the families that exist there. Right. So some of the local policy work I want to see if I could do, and it's, it's hard to do because it's within business, but can we put pressure on those companies to make a commitment to hire a percentage of their workforce locally? And I'm not talking janitors and cooks and all that. I'm talking about like career wage jobs, careers, um, like, can we can we push them to do that? Policymakers probably won't want to do that because it's too much regul like they don't want to regu- like put too much regulation on business and like that's not good for their political career. But I think we could leverage communications, right? So if a company's willing to do that, like, well, we'll push it out and say, look, look at this company's made this commitment. Isn't this great? It's like the goodwill for the community. Um, because a lot of these companies are going to get pushback from the local communities that they're coming in. So I think that's how I'm going to try to do it. Start at the local level, start with really using our brand and our communications to push change. Um, and then if we could create a couple models of this, maybe here in Watsonville and Salinas and Gilroy, where some companies are hiring local and they're like, Hey, it's actually good business for us. Like we have talent here, diverse talent. This is that's local. Like this is good business. If we could do this successfully, then maybe policymakers will, will use this, use these as test cases and say, well, look, it's, it's worked in these communities. Maybe we would be willing to push some regulation or policy um, to make this more uh, systematic. Wow. That's really, it's really interesting. Um, and I think it's a, like the approach of, you know, nonprofits and like reaching out to businesses is becoming more and more popular, especially in the time ta- and what you brought up, which is like, you know, businesses are feeling pressure for maybe like their negative impacts and now seeing, okay, how can we, you know, rebuild our brand, but also have like the opportunity to actually have impact. And, um, you know, I'm not sure of the actual intentions, but it definitely 
is growing. And I think it's a really interesting approach. Um, I, and you kind of mentioned it in this area about just like kind of greater career inequalities and how you see that as an issue. Um, are there other, other areas that you're passionate such like, such as that, um, that you feel like digital education can help contribute to mending? Well, I mean, every company is a tech company now. And I think, you know, I think like you go into healthcare, if you go into environmental, you know, to the environment, like where, where you're, you're, you're running all, I mean, even just business, like you're running all your payroll through like technology. Now, you know, more people don't cut checks anymore. You get, you know, um, um, you get all the policies and messages from your company come through email, like, um, you're running now meetings virtually like so much, every company now is tech tech company. And so I think empowering youth to start seeing that, uh, you can be in environmental studies, you could be in communications, you could be, you want, uh, you could go into education. You need technology skills. Um, and we can actually apply some technology to help those, those industries. Um, so that's, that's something I really you know, focus on. Um, so my kind of like, you know, I think this applies to every, everything. And I think the one place that people don't often think of technology, but you can actually make into a career is in the arts, you know, like I think people are like, Oh, I'm, 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 I'm in music or I'm a painter. Um, uh, and they're like, well, how, how do you make art your day job? You know, um, every company needs storytellers now. You know, they need to tell their brand. They need to pitch their brand online. They need social media managers. They need graphic designers. They need people to create video content for them. Like, so I think even for like artists and um, uh, start talking to them about how do you make, how do you, how do you, how can you get paid and have a good living career with your passions? It's possible in today's world. Yeah, absolutely. Tech has really made anything possible. And it's really just about making sure that everyone has has equal opportunity and access to those tools, which is what Digital Nest is doing. Um, so thank you so much for your work. Um, we love to close out each of our podcast episodes asking our guests, what is your call to action? If you have like just one closing message, you could send out to the young people and policy professionals who are listening into this conversation and kind of thinking about how this issue plays out in their daily lives. Like what's just the one thing that you you could say to them right now? I think for youth, it's pretty simple for me. It's like, believe in yourself. You know, I, I think youth are so creative. The, the, the world's wide open. So much is possible. They're not constrained by like, oftentimes by responsibility or like people depending on them. So this is an opportunity for you to really just push yourself and, and dream big and go for it, you know, and, um, but you need to connect with people. You can't do that by yourself. So you, you need to build relationships. Um, you, you know, you need to look for mentors that are older or more experienced. You need to connect with your peers, you need to work collaboratively. Like that's how they, like your, your dreams, your visions like will happen, you know? Um, for policymakers, it's, you know, we can't wait. Like this is, let's not, once kids go back to school, say, Oh, the problem's done. Everybody, you know, we don't have to worry about internet anymore. Like we, we, there's going to be another pandemic. There's going to be another crisis and whether it's environmental disaster, whether it's, uh, you know, health, something health is that pandemic, whether it's economic disaster, whatever it is, like 
we need to get kids connected. We need this as a basic utility. We need to push back on the on on the the communication industry, and uh, we've and we've done it before. We've done it with phone. We've done it with water. We've done it. so. It's not like we have any examples in our history of how to bring make these basic utilities available for everybody. So let's lean on what we've done and and let's let's make it happen. Absolutely. Well, thank you so so much for for hopping on this podcast with us. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing you speak about this issue. I know before I got on this call like 45 minutes ago, my my knowledge on this was quite limited and I feel like I've learned so much and I'm so inspired by the work that you do in this area and best of luck when it comes to expanding and you know adjusting back to to life post pandemic. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Policy Wise. We are your hosts, Demetria and Eleanor Arsbecker. What topics would you like to hear about and who would you like to hear from? Check out the episode description for a link to our survey. Policy Wise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Youth Leadership Institute makes sure young people are at the decision-making tables across California. California Forward leads a statewide movement bringing people together across communities, regions, and interests to improve government and ensure the economy works for everyone. This episode was produced by Tim Haydock and Jarrett Ramones, edited by Jarrett Ramones, social media graphics created by Abby Pugh, Eleanor Arsbecker, and Mahek Kondru, and the music was sourced from artlist.io. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. Thanks so much.